You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. In this week's podcast, we already know about the cardioprotective effects of alcohol, but new research published this week more accurately quantifies that effect and points towards a possible mechanism. The results from the study suggest that um, the mechanisms for this cardioprotective effect is mediated through the atherothrombotic pathways. We'll also find out from Annabelle Fairman about the BMJ Group's Lifetime Achievement Award and how you can vote for the nominees. But before that, Annabelle's going to run through her pick of this week's news. So thanks for joining us, Annabelle. Well, thanks for letting me join you. Um, I've got several stories here, two from um, the UK, but also one from the States. Great. All right. Uh, the first one from the UK is about alcohol, and I gather you're going to do other stuff on that in the podcast. So That's right. What's quite interesting is uh, Andrew Lansley, the health secretary, last summer set up these uh, groups which are called responsibility deal networks, looking at various aspects of public health. They set up one in alcohol, one on physical activity, one on food, one on behaviour change, and one on occupational health. And the one on alcohol is proving quite controversial, more probably more controversial than the others, because the doctors in it feel that um, it's not really being very radical or not going far enough in trying to tackle overconsumption of alcohol and the ill effects of that. Sure. And Uh, that's uh, being prompted by the fact that there's so many industry people Yes, there are several industry people on it, and and there's people from the Department of Health, and there are several doctors. And... um, the doctors are meant to sign up at the end of the sort of their negotiations um, to a plan of action, but they're now saying they might not sign up to it because it doesn't go nearly far enough. Um, one in particular called Nick Sharon, who is the head of clinical hepatology at the University of Southampton, uh, spoke to one of our reporters about it. And he said the, the problem was that the, the group's industry members on the panel, their first duty was to their shareholders to deliver profits. And that means maintaining alcohol consumption and alcohol sales. He's quoted as saying, unless the drinks industry is prepared to discuss how they can change their fundamental business models to deliver the sort of changes in alcohol consumption that we've seen in France and Italy and the associated reduction in death rates, then we haven't really even started the process. Basically, he is discouraged, being rather discouraged by what they've managed to achieve. And I think there's basically this stalemate there at the moment, and it's not clear what's going to happen next. Sure. So what's your other story? Well, there's a couple of other stories. One is about testing for chlamydia. It's rather interesting. It comes from Baltimore. The Johns Hopkins School of Medicine there set up a um, self-testing website where people who suspect they might have chlamydia can go along and sign up for a, a testing pack. This has been very successful. They've had they regularly get about 100,000 hits a month and they've sold 3,500 kits, uh, home testing kits. And what's quite interesting is it seems to this particular home testing seems to reach um, parts that or patients that other tests can't reach. They're getting a higher positive rate. Uh, people who Uh, send their tests in from this particular site have a positive rate of about 10.3%, whereas um, the positivity rate in um, family planning clinics is is between 3.3% and 5.5%. So it's clearly getting to young people who perhaps, I don't know, don't want to go to family planning clinics or you know don't know where the local family planning clinic is or people who just use the net more. But it they're rather pleased with it. They feel it's a successful um, 
a successful venture. And mm. I think they're hoping that other pet places will copy it as well. And I imagine them probably is a great um, scope for other areas, other countries and so forth. And uh, what's the last story you Well, the last one was about the big changes that um, are due to take place in the NHS. There's been a lot of discussion about whether or not the changes will result in, com- in hospitals competing with one another on price. The BMA GPC group last week passed a motion saying they'd like to see the bill amended so as to make it quite clear that there's not to be any competition on price. They were moved to do this partly because earlier in the week, David Nicholson, the chief executive of the NHS, sent round a letter saying there's no question of of competing on price. It's only going to be competition on quality. And so some people were rather reassured by this. But the BMA have said, well, if that's the case, why does Section 103 of the bill allow a maximum price to be set and for the commissioner and provider to agree a price that doesn't exceed the maximum but you know could be below the maximum and and basically they're saying that actually it doesn't really matter what David Nicholson says what what's in the bill is what ultimately is going to matter I mean five years down the line when lawyers are arguing about it it'll be the wording in the bill it won't matter absolutely what the letter said um, so I thought I thought that was a very interesting story hmm. Well, thanks for that. And of course, all those stories and more are available in print, online and now in the BMJ's new iPad app. So Annabelle, something else that's happening this week is that the voting for the Lifetime Achievement Award has opened. Um, this award happens every year and will take place in May. And you're the champion for this particular Lifetime Achievement Award. So how can people go about voting for it? Uh, well, basically, they, they must uh, just click on our website. There's a, a section that's devoted to the awards. And then they will read the biographies and details about the three uh, people that have been selected by our judges. And then they're entitled to vote. Last year, we had 40,000 people vote, which was very satisfying. The, sure. the first winner was Judith Mackay. She was from Hong Kong, and she spent a lifetime fighting the tobacco industry. And the person who won last year was someone called Professor Marlene Temmerman, who's a Belgian senator, an obstetrician, and who's done an awful lot of work for women and babies in both Belgium and in Kenya, where she worked for a long time. So we've got three nominees for the award this year, and the first one is George Elaine. So could you tell me a little bit about him? Yes, uh, an interesting man. He's the Chancellor of the University of the West Indies. Uh, He's done a great deal of work on HIV AIDS and also in the area of non-communicable diseases. Um, He headed PAHO, which is the Pan-American Health Organization, for eight years. Um, And in 2003, the Secretary General of the UN appointed him Special Envoy on AIDS to the Caribbean. I mean, in 2003, he also um, set up or headed a commission looking at problems uh, of the Caribbean health problems, which was AIDS, but also many other diseases. And um, and then most recently, his achievement has been to set up a huge conference that's being held in New York in September on uh, non-communicable diseases. He's persuaded the UN to get involved, and the UN has organised this conference. Yep. And he was nominated by Richard Smith, the former BMJ editor, and I caught up with Richard at a British Library event to ask him why he thinks George is so deserving. Um, George is a wonderful man. I think one of his greatest talents is bringing people together. He can take scientists, uh, doctors, nurses, politicians, diplomats and get them all pointing in the same direction. And he's done that, for example, around all his work with AIDS 
in the Caribbean, but most recently he's recognised that non-communicable disease, diabetes, uh, heart disease, that kind of thing, have become extraordinarily an important problem in low and middle income countries. And he has really made this happen. He's created really uh, a United Nations meeting. He's got the prime ministers in the Caribbean to work on it. And I think that illustrates his ability to bring people together and tackle a major problem that can only be tackled by everybody working together. It can't even be tackled just within health ministries. It requires also finance ministries. It requires all of government plus people plus health professionals to do something. And I think George illustrates his abilities by the way he's made that happen. Okay, so Anbal, our next nominee is Richard Pito. Why has he been nominated? Well, he's probably done more than anyone else in the world uh, to reduce deaths from smoking. He worked with the epidemiologist Richard Doll on the smoking and death studies in doctors, which re- uh, reported in 1976, 1994 and 2004, mm-hmm. and has also conducted huge epidemiological studies in China, India and Russia. Although he's mostly affected with the effects of smoking, he in Russia, actually, he also showed up the deleterious effects of overconsumption of alcohol, and that's actually led to the Russian government trying to curb drinking there. So he was nominated by Judith Mackay, who you mentioned earlier, our former Lifetime Achievement Award winner, and also seconded by health economist Martin McKee, and they joined me to explain why they think Richard deserves it. I think essentially it's his absolute passion for saving lives and for saving lives in large numbers. Absolute passion about using a very strong scientific base for actually saving lives and dedicating himself to the big issues, the major causes of cancer, the major things that can be reversible in a whole number of health issues. And Martha, would you echo Judith's uh, opinion there? Absolutely. I think that he would deserve the award almost on the basis of his enormous methodological contributions to uh, medical statistics and to epidemiology, but he's taken it much further than that. And in particular, what I've been so impressed uh, with has been his ability to take the evidence to a global level. So, in fact, I mean, he's very much based in Oxford and very much a sort of uh, a homegrown British invention in many ways. But I think at the same time, he's a true internationalist. And I think his work really in the low and middle income countries and not even just the work he's done, but the uh, sort of training and the capacity building and the building up of the scientific base in a number of countries, particularly China, has been It'll last forever, that kind of enhancement of epidemiology and of advocacy. And I think it must not be forgotten. I mean, we're talking about his global influence, but I think it must never be forgotten that his influence in Britain has also been absolutely enormous as well, not just in terms of tobacco, but in terms of breast cancer and much of the rest of of the work that he's done within the UK itself. And again, you can see the evidence of that when you look at the data on mortality from breast cancer, which has fallen more rapidly in the United Kingdom than in any other European country. And a lot of that was uh, because of the evidence that uh, Richard had brought together. And finally, we have John, or sometimes Jack, Wenberg. So why has he been nominated? Well, he's uh, famous for being an epidemiologist uh, like Sir Richard Pito, but uh, not really an epidemiologist of disease, but of healthcare. 
primarily, he produces this atlas called the Dartmouth Atlas of Healthcare, and it looks at the variations across the states for elective surgery and, and numerous other procedures. And he's found, he's looked at the oversupply of healthcare in particular, really, which clearly can be caused by patient-led demand, but also can be caused by over-provision or oversupply with health systems uh, promoting over-treatment in some cases. Mm, and I yes. think he's highlighted that in particular. Now, he was nominated by Muir Gray, who's Chief Knowledge Officer for the NHS. And um, Muir joined me in the studio to explain why. Well, some people do research which adds to what we know. But actually, the great fashion now, which Jack was in 40 years ago, is disruption, disruptive knowledge. By disruptive, I mean it changes the way we think about everything. It changes the way we assume that more money is going to solve our problems. It's disruptive because it really upsets people. I don't know if Jack ever checked under his car when he started publishing, but he was the subject of a lot of vitriol and uh, anger just for saying, well, maybe medicine isn't quite so evidence-based. Why is it that we've got this terrific evidence, but some people do five times as many operations as other people? And he never said they were bad people or things were wrong, but the disruptive effect is really terrific. And now that we've run out of money in every country in the world, we're now going to start looking at, can we get more value from the money we've got instead of can we get more money to do more of the same? Yep. And sometimes big changes need someone to spearhead them almost. Do you think Jack's that kind of man? Yes, I'm based in uh, Garibaldi and uh, Risorgimento and Jack's the Garibaldi really. Uh, you know, Garibaldi's motto was Roma o morte, Roma or death. <laughs> you know, so you, these great disruptive figures they describe a future and they say if we're going to make that future you've got to march with me and it's not going to be easy, it's going to be tough and you're going to be attacked but that's the only way to go. So he's a great disruptor. And as Anbal said, you can vote for one of these outstanding nominees on the BMJ homepage at bmj.com. Thanks, Annabelle. Thank you. Now, published in the BMJ this week are two meta-analyses, both looking at the cardioprotective effects of alcohol. The first, based on observational studies, looks at the effect of alcohol consumption on cardiovascular disease outcomes. The second looks at specific disease biomarkers associated with cardiovascular disease. I'm joined on the line by two of the authors of the studies, Paul Ronskley and Susan Bryan, both from the Calgary Institute of Population and Public Health at the University of Calgary. Now, thanks for joining me, both of you. Um, We've known for some time the cardioprotective effects of alcohol. So what's different about your studies? What are you adding? That's right. As you mentioned, Duncan, there there are a number of previous meta-analyses that have looked at the association between alcohol consumption and cardiovascular disease outcomes. And these largely suggest that alcohol is associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. However, many of these reviews focus on overall cardiovascular disease mortality only or focus on a single cardiovascular outcome, such as myocardial infarction or stroke. Uh, The most recent of these reviews was published in 2006. So there's been essentially a five-year gap in which a number of additional studies have been been published on this topic. And, I mean, essentially giving these limitations, our goal is to perform the most comprehensive review Mm. on this topic to date and assess the association with alcohol consumption in five different 
cardiovascular outcomes, these being overall cardiovascular disease mortality, incidence and mortality from coronary heart disease, and incidence and mortality from stroke. So how many studies are we talking about here? So essentially we combed through the last 60 years of medical literature and identified just over 80 studies that compared drinkers versus non-drinkers mm-hmm. on these five different outcomes. And what kind of uh, pooled number of people are we talking about? Oh, we're talking in the excess of millions, for sure, when we pool the, uh, the results together. So once you've, you've pulled all these studies together, you know, what's the bottom line for cardiovascular disease outcomes with regard to alcohol? Right. So essentially we found that light to moderate alcohol consumption was cardioprotective. So specifically, people who drank in moderation were 15 to 25% less likely to develop all five outcomes of interest. However, people that consumed large amounts of alcohol, so up to five drinks a day, were at an increased risk of certain conditions such as stroke. Okay. And, you know, when you talk about five drinks, how much are you talking about there in terms of of alcohol consumption? We used U.S. guidelines to define what a standard drink was, and we said that one alcoholic beverage contains approximately 12.5 grams of alcohol. And in terms of portions, this is essentially one can of beer or one bottle of beer, Mm. a five-ounce glass of wine, or one shot of spirits essentially sure so we look at the when we look at the dose response analysis we see that essentially 60 grams of alcohol per day or approximately five drinks a day was detrimental whereas 2.5 or to 14.9 grams so essentially half a drink or one drink a day was protective for all five outcomes. And were you able to stratify risk by the types of alcohol? You know, you've mentioned beer, wine, spirits. Did that make a difference? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the majority of the observational studies didn't stratify results by beverage type. And therefore, we're unable to determine if the protective effect was limited to wine or was equally protective for beer and spirits. However, um, Susan... Um, can kind of explain how we were able to analyze this data within the um, biomarkers uh, systematic review and essentially look at the effect of beverage type on um, biological markers within the blood. So as well as the research on cardiovascular disease outcomes, you've also carried out a research published alongside that first paper looking at the effects of alcohol consumption on biological markers associated with coronary heart disease. So could you just take us through what you what you were looking at there and what you found? The intention was to uh, summarize the data from studies where alcohol was given as an intervention. So this is in trials where subjects were given a set amount of alcohol over a set period of time and their blood levels of biomarkers were measured. Mm -hmm. So it's somewhat of a a more controlled look at what alcohol is doing in terms of biomarkers associated with heart disease. Mm. And the full list of biomarkers, because there are a lot of them you looked at, are available in the paper for anyone to have a look at. For the most part, they are biomarkers associated with atherosclerosis, blood clotting. So uh, what did you find uh, with regards to that? Were there any sort of standout results? 
We did find that alcohol did significantly increase the levels of HDL, and we also found there was a significant increase in adiponectin levels, which is also considered to be uh, cardioprotective. And then also fibrinogen was found to be significantly decreased following uh, alcohol consumption. Does that suggest uh, a mechanism by which this protective effect is manifest? It could suggest a mechanism, and I think... um, the uh, one of the most frustrating things when writing up this paper was to actually find um material in the literature to explain this uh this finding so what are the actual mechanisms of action behind the alcohol in terms of its um uh, effect on these biomarkers and that is actually um quite a notable gap in the existing research um in explaining uh not only what we saw with the the uh, alcohol intervention studies, but also in terms of looking at um, the observational studies that we uh, summarized as well that found an association between um, drinking alcohol and uh, less risk of heart disease. And earlier, Paul mentioned that in the first analysis, you weren't able to look for different effects in different drinks. Um, Was the biomarker analysis able to do that? The paper that looked at biomarkers, we did stratify uh, the studies according to uh, the alcohol type consumed, so um, wine or red wine versus spirits versus um, beer, and we actually didn't find any differences across the the types of alcohol consumed. Mm -hmm. Um, So from this, you can can take from this that it is actually the alcohol having having the effect. as opposed to other uh, substances in the alcohol in the alcoholic beverage, does age and sex play a role in uh, both the biological markers and the the risk of cardiovascular disease outcomes? So essentially, our studies uh, were limited to the adult population, and again, um, because of the aggregate nature, we couldn't actually stratify by um, different age groups. Uh, we were able to provide. Um, different sex estimates, and the general consensus was there was no real difference in the cardio protection for males or females. But getting back to age, obviously this is a very important area for future research, considering that cardiovascular disease is predominantly amongst older adults. When you take these two papers together, the observational and the biomarkers paper, they present quite a convincing case for a causal link between alcohol consumption and cardio protection. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, when you look at essentially the observational systematic review, it shows that there is an extensive there's extensive evidence pointing towards an association between moderate alcohol consumption and reduced risk for coronary heart disease. And when you combine these results with those from our second systematic review or, or our compa- companion paper looking at biological markers, the argument for a causal link uh, becomes quite compelling. That's right, and the the results from the study suggest that um, the mechanisms for this cardioprotective effect is mediated through the atherothrombotic pathways. However, what is missing is the actual understanding of the mechanisms of action of alcohol in terms of the cardioprotection. Now, despite the compelling evidence for a protective effect, you've been very careful in your papers not to overplay the positive effects of drinking. Yeah, that's right. In no way are we saying that uh, you know everyone should go out and and buy a bottle of wine tonight and start drinking a glass a day. Um, you know, if anything, 
you know, public health messaging around moderate alcohol consumption is difficult, and we do tread lightly when discussing, you know, health policy within the paper. But if anything, you know, I think we can think of these two papers as providing the foundation for a discussion around messaging to both individual patients wondering if, you know, a drink a day is cardioprotective, and also in developing public health messaging around um, moderate alcohol consumption at the population level. And also another point to make is that alcohol, um, like any other drug, we have found that there is a particular dose that has been shown to have a beneficial effect, but um, too much is not an even better thing. So in this case, I think it's it's a prime example of how um, the dose is everything, and um, it is... Uh, determines whether or not something is beneficial or harmful. Great. Well, I think that's a, that's a good point to end on. Um, Paul and Susan, thank you very much for joining me. You're thank very you. welcome. And those papers are available in print, online, on bmj.com, and in our new iPad app. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more news from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.